0: Alrighty, so we are to the point in Genesis where we're going to start uh, looking at Abraham. Abraham uh, is, of course, you know, known as the father of of our faith. Uh, The Bible makes a whole bunch about Abraham. Tonight we're going to see um, what I would call the headwaters of the covenant of grace in this story. The headwaters of of the covenant of grace this is where God's covenant with his people which was ultimately you know delivered in Jesus Christ this is kinda of where it was starting to to begin it was it's like being up on the top of the mountain and seeing the where the river starts and even the biggest rivers have sometimes the smallest starts up in the mountains uh, and and this is this seems like a small start it's just one man uh, and God is calling him to do something pretty radical but yet it doesn't seem very consequential And yet, because this man does what God says, it becomes very consequential. And through this man, Jesus Christ comes uh, to to, to establish the everlasting covenant that even you and I get to be a part of today by faith in his name. And so, before we begin to talk about some of the details of the story, we've got to kind of remind ourselves, what is is the covenant of grace? What is the covenant of grace? Well, uh, you've heard me talk about covenants a lot. you know, especially if you come on Sunday nights. I've talked about it a lot in these various series that we've done. A covenant is a relationship that is based on promises. Uh, someone, usually a heavier person or a more substantial person in society, comes to a less substantial person and delivers certain promises in exchange for certain obligations that the lesser person will keep. And if they keep those obligations, the greater person promises that he'll deliver on what he said he would deliver on. That's sort of the basic idea of what a covenant is. People made covenants back in the day, way before this. Uh, People made covenants after this. People still make covenants. Uh, Marriage, what we talked about this morning, that's a great example of a covenant. Um, when, When you sign your mortgage papers, it actually has covenant language in there if you read those. Uh, to have and to hold kind of language. That's that's covenant language. But God takes something that was basically ordinary that people did all the time, and and he wants to use it as a way to describe how he wants to relate to us. He wants to relate to us in a special kind of relationship based on promises, obligations, and we'll see in the story of Abraham as it unfolds, in promises even to enable the the lesser partner, us, to keep all the terms, Uh, because if it depended on us to keep the terms, it it wouldn't last very long. But this this story is just the headwaters, the very beginnings of a particular covenant that we call the covenant of grace. Uh, To understand that, actually, if you'll take the hymnal again, Uh, this is kind of unusual, but I'll I'll have you turn in the hymnal uh, to the very back again, and I want you to go to page... Um, 852 And you'll find way back there another Well our confession of faith in our church It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith And there's a a reason I'm having you turn there Is there's a great little definition of the covenant of grace there And you can find it in uh, Chapter 7 Paragraph 3 And I'll ask somebody to read it Maybe Clint would you read that to us Paragraph 3 Yep. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make his second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Very good. And then paragraph four. Very good. And so at the very beginning of what Clint read, it said, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that covenant referred to the one with Adam, known as the covenant of life or the covenant of works Uh, in the garden. If you uh, keep my word, I will bless you. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I will curse you. You will die. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve broke it. And because they broke it, this is saying they're no longer able to find life with God by way of works by way of self-righteousness. And so what God did is he made a second and a greater covenant, covenant of grace, where not only does he make promises based on obligations, but as you can see there, he even promises to give the things that make the obligations possible for us to keep. Uh, The number one obligation that we have to enter the covenant of grace is what? Faith. And we know, I mean... that you don't just get faith by trying hard, do you? Don't you know that? Um, You can even think maybe of how you became a Christian. And I know there's a lot of different kinds of stories in this room about how you became a Christian, but all of us can testify to the fact that something was working before we started working. You know, we we didn't decide to believe and then boom, we believed. God was already at work. And that's what this is describing. In the covenant of grace, God promises to give his Holy Spirit to those who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. That, along with all the other blessings of the covenant, are given through Jesus Christ, it says. And so what we're going to say tonight about Abraham, this scene where God calls Abraham for the first time, is that even then, God was dealing with Abraham on the basis of Jesus Christ. God called Abraham and gave to him the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, even though he didn't know him by name, he didn't know all the details about him, yet he believed in the same essential thing that you and I believe, and he began to walk with God in response to that. And God took this man and got a whole lot done in the world through him and through his offspring. Uh, in fact, the Bible really, from that, this point on, only has one covenant by which people can be saved the covenant made with Abraham. Uh, paragraph 5, if you'll look back down at that from the confession, this covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, or the Old Testament, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, or the Paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. These are Abraham's people. All of which signified Christ to come. But now, right? But now, look at ver- uh, paragraph 6. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited... The ordinances in which the covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though much fewer in number than what you have in the Old Testament, yet uh, they're more simple, they have less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all the nations, the same grace that Abraham had. Now I'm saying all this because you don't just read the story of Abraham and hear a nice story about an ancient dude who had an encounter with God. Uh, Abraham was the way, it was sort of like the D-Day Normandy, it it was the the beginning of the takeover of the world that God accomplished through Jesus Christ, and not only that, your relationship with God and Abraham's relationship with God, same. External details, different. We, We deal with God differently externally in the New Testament than they did in the Old, but nevertheless, same relationship, same God, same people, same way of coming to Him amazing isn't it because of that we can learn so much and so I want you to look at if you look at your bulletin I want to talk to you through three different aspects of this calling that God brings to Abraham here because everything in the covenant of grace starts with a calling God said to Abraham go and Abraham went the calling is what got it started Very similar, again, to the way we relate to God. It begins with his calling. And our whole life is a response to his calling. Three things in the bulletin. Uh, What did God call Abraham from? What did God call Abraham to? And then what did God call Abraham for? And we're going to learn a lot, I think, as we look through those at our own relationship with God. First of all, what does God call Abraham from? Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from what? Your country, your kindred, and your father's house. What's God asking Abraham to do? Leave it all behind. Leave Leave, leave what behind? Security net. net. Everything he knows. knows. His identity. All the things that back then they valued most. I mean, we value these three things today, certainly. I mean, we all do, but I think they valued them in the ancient world even more than we do. Country or land, kindred or relatives, and father's house, immediate family. I mean, if you want to talk about the top three maybe idols of the ancient world, land, kindred, and father's house. These were things people invested so much of their identity, so much of their security and self worth in. And God says, Leave all of it behind. All of it. Now think about why would God do that? Why would God want to rip Abraham away from the things he valued most? He was on the wrong course. He was on the wrong course. Yep. Yep, he was on the wrong course. And unless he gets uncomfortable in himself, he'll never learn how to get comfortable in God. Which is always the case, right? If you're comfortable in yourself, secure in yourself, confident in yourself and what you can bring to the table, you're never going to learn how to be comfortable and confident in what God alone can bring to the table. Uh, Let let me give you uh, an example. Look look over at um, Luke chapter 14. We'll get some words of Jesus in the mix here. Because I've already said that when God dealt with Abraham, he was already dealing with Abraham on the basis of Jesus. And you're like, I don't believe you. Well, here, listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 14 of Luke, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Robert, will you read that to us? It's no problem. You can pass if you want. Yep. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. What does Jesus, what is he trying to say? Hate your mother, your father, your wife, your kids, your siblings. What does he mean? Love him, more love him more than them, right? Hate like your love for me ought to make your love for them like it was hate. Because it so outweighs. So it's a question of value. And Mickey had said earlier that, Abraham must have been on the wrong course. For God to want to rip him away from what he had before, it must have been something off, and I think it's exactly right. And and honestly, even when we don't know something's off, something's off with us too. Until God comes and calls us in such a way that it would disrupt our lives, that it would pull us away from the natural path that we're on to the path that God wants us to be on. Uh, that's why Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you do this radical un, you know, hitching from all those other things that you're naturally hitched to. Uh, you can't marry somebody unless you divorce the first person that you're married to, right? And for Jesus, you, know, you cannot marry Jesus unless you get a divorce with self, with idols, with self-righteousness, with whatever it is that's in your way. Now, we happen to know, if you go back to Genesis 12, we happen to know that for in Abraham's case, it was likely that he was on the wrong course for many reasons. Uh, Abraham, we know, grew up and was raised in Ur of the Chaldeans. We see that in chapter 11, verse 31. And Ur of the Chaldeans was the biggest city in this time. It was the biggest city in the world that we know about. Um, and there's been a lot of excavations in this part of the world. They've discovered that the city was devoted to the worship of the moon. Not only that, the names of Sarah, his wife, the name of his father, Terah, the name of his brother, Haran, all derive from words for the moon and the sun and other kinds of astronomical figures. Uh, leading many people to believe that Abraham, even though he lived, in, he, he grew up in the line of Shem, the good line from Noah, the one that had had the faith sort of passed on. Nevertheless, it seems like their family line had been compromised by being steeped in a pagan culture. And so, part maybe maybe part of the reason why God says to Abraham to follow Me, you got to go out, you got to leave, is because Abraham was surrounded by and had maybe bought into partly the various pagan practices that were going on around him. Interesting. Uh, In fact, we know this to be at least partially the case because in Acts chapter 8, yes, 8, the um, speech that Stephen makes in front of the Sanhedrin, he says, Abraham, your forefather, worshipped foreign gods in Ur of the Chaldees. And so, you know, the Bible itself says there was something wrong with Abraham. Now, I I don't think that means necessarily that Abraham did not know the true God, like in any form. I think there was some way in which he already knew the name and he knew some of the stories that had passed down the line, line of Shem, but he had compromised it to where maybe he was mixing God, Yahweh, with the moon and the various other things that were popular in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so God says you got to leave all that. you got to make a clean break with your environment and with the customs that you're used to in order to come out and be with me. Same thing is true today. The worship of the moon is not very popular. Right? Or the sun or the stars so much anymore. But as one writer points out, in a secular society where it seems to be non-religious... There is actually a constant, ever-present companion with that secularism. This is what he says. Secularism is always accompanied by sacralization. Let me explain. Sacralization is the development by which people, things, events, and processes are bestowed with sacred status, even as the tide of Christian influence ebbs from Western societies. What does he mean? That's a lot of words there. When people stop worshiping God, truly, because we're designed by God to be worshipers, we tend, instead of becoming secular like we think, we tend to just sacralize everything else. So that we may not have a God from a Bible or from a book as a culture anymore, but now we've turned our families, our nation, our material possessions, our sex, our ambition, we've turned everything into our God's. The writer's name is Eden Pravan, who says secularization is always accompanied by sacralization. The more secular a society gets, the more sacralized or made holy in their own minds every ordinary thing in life becomes. And I think that's a great example, a great description of the life that you and I are steeped in by nature. Listen to, listen to this. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is the idolatry of the self. Hmm? The idolatry of the self. Uh, we really tend to believe that we don't need a king except ourselves and that we don't need a goal except self-advancement. And so when God comes to us and and God, God comes to you when you first become a Christian and calls you, but you know, his calling is like a banner over your life after you become a Christian. His calling never leaves you. The Bible says God's calling is irrevocable. So every day of your life, God is calling saying, get out, leave behind the idol worship that's native to your own heart, that's so comfortable to the people around you, stop worshiping created things and come to me. Make a clean break. Hate your father, mother, children, wives. I mean, hate those things because you love me that much more than those things. You see, Jesus doesn't really, Jesus doesn't make it that much uh, of a guess. When God comes to you and calls you, it will upset your life. Anybody experienced that? You cannot really have a relationship with God if it does not upset your life. If you haven't been upset, by, if your life has never been upset by God, maybe you haven't heard his call yet. Because his call always upsets the proverbial apple cart. Turns things upside down. Wow. And yet, in the example of Abram, what do we learn? To have my apple cart turned upside down is exactly what I need. Because not only is God being calling Abraham from something, he's calling him to something. And the thing he's calling him to is worlds better than the thing he's calling him from. So let's look at that. What is he calling Abraham to? Uh, look at verse 1 again. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the what? land that I will show you and when you get there what does it say I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed what a promise Abraham's supposed to go out of his you know, comfort zone out, outside of the things that came natural to him, the various idols that maybe he had learned to worship, and he's to follow God to a land. But notice, Abraham has no clue where that land's at. Imagine the dialogue. Abraham, get out. Okay, where? I'll show you. And then God stops talking after that, and and, and Abraham just has to start walking in order to discover it. Why would God do it that way? Why wouldn't God just give him a map, a survey of the land? Here is your travel brochure of where we're going to go. I'm going to take you here, 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 and here, and this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Why would God just say, Abraham, come, and I'll show you? Think about it. What's that? He'd miss out? He'd miss out? Yeah. Try He'd try to rely on himself, probably. It's got to be a walk by faith, not by sight. We know that. He's, not just giving him theology and educating him. he's transforming him. He's transforming him. And so he's not merely giving Abraham a piece of land. He's promising Abraham... Himself. It's a little bit like this. Your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, I got an assignment for you. What is it? You'll see. Your boss usually doesn't do that. Your boss usually comes at work because that's the way work is, and he's already got or she's already got it already outlined, A, B, C. Here's what I want you to do, A, and then B, and then C. Go do it. He, she or he gives you an assignment and it's very clearly cut. And once you're done with the assignment, you're done with the assignment. When you check out of work, you're checked out of work. You're off the clock. And he or she is not your boss anymore till you get back on the clock. God is not giving Abraham that kind of relationship. If he had given Abraham the blow by blow, Abraham might think, okay, I see. This is like a, this is like a business transaction, Instead, what God does is much more the kind of thing that we do when we get married. When you stand in front of the altar to get married, as we talked about this morning, one doesn't say, hey, I want you to do A, B, and C. And the other says, okay, I'll do A, B, and C. You do D, E, and F. No, literally you say, I will be with you no matter what. Sickness, health, rich, poor, death do us part. To have and to hold from now and forever forever. That's the kind of thing that God is promising to Abraham. For Ab- See, it wasn't about the land, even at this point. It wasn't about a piece of real estate. Already, the relationship that God was going to have with his people through Jesus Christ was being offered to Abraham. And Abraham was about to walk right into that thing. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Uh, look down at verse 7. He goes into the land... Remember, God said, it's the land that I will show you. But when he gets there, what does God actually show Abraham? Verse 7. He doesn't just take him around and show him land. What does he show him? Yeah. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. You know, Abraham wasn't just on a tour. (laughs) Or on a, you know, open house for a piece of property that he was going to one day get. Abraham was walking into a relationship, and every step of the way as Abraham goes in the land, God shows him himself. And Abraham worships, and then God shows him himself, and then Abraham worships, and God shows him himself, and then Abraham worships. Come with me, Abraham, and I will show you. Why that way? Because it's a marriage, not a business relationship. God is not trying to be Abraham's boss. And he's not trying to call Abraham as his employee. He's trying to call Abraham as his son. Yeah. God's self. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. No, no, that's great. Verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So it wasn't the land first that he showed him. It was himself. And then he showed him the land. The land was just an appendage, an appendix on to the main thing that God was wanting to give Abraham, which was him. Wow. Beautiful. So when God calls you away from something, when he upsets your life and disrupts it and says, hate your mom and dad and come to me, uh, you're never going to be ripped off in the covenant of grace. Because God's not just going to give you blessings and goodies and, you know, things like that. No, not things at all. Uh, God is actually going to give you something that you can't get anywhere else. Nowhere else. Because he's given you him. I often think about this, you know, and, and maybe I'm thinking into it too much here, but I think about Abraham walking with God through the land of Canaan for the first time. He'd never been there before. This is going to one day be the land that Israel was going to come into, the land that Jesus was born in, the land that he would walk through. And Abraham is the first one to walk with God through that land. And I just think, okay, what what places did he pass through that Jesus would one day pass through and what were the places that God appeared to Abraham, places of significance to what would happen with Israel later and with Jesus later. You know? Isn't there something of Jesus even in the fact that God is appearing in the land? Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh. And it says he tabernacled among us. Well, literally it means he pitched his tent in the land of Canaan. Verse 8 in our passage, From there Abraham moved to the hill country on, on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I mean, this is like a, he's getting a kind of gospel lesson here. This land is special, Abraham, not because it's some great piece of real estate. If you've ever been to Israel, you know, it's not that great of a piece of real estate. To be quite honest, right? I mean, there's a lot better pieces of real estate in the world. I mean, why couldn't have God given him Switzerland? <laughs> or the Alps of France? I mean, those are way better places. It wasn't about that. This was going to be a holy place because God was going to show up and live there. God's son was going to live there. And Abraham is getting a little preview of that, a little taste of that. That's why, I'm, that's why I say when God, this is the headwaters of a covenant. Of Grace that God is going to fulfill in his son Jesus and Abraham's just getting the little first spring waters The snow melt way up in the mountains that was would one day become a huge river flowing into the sea in Jesus And it was enough actually to change Abraham's life completely to turn it upside down And so look at the last thing tonight, what does God call Abraham for? This relationship that God has with Abraham, the covenant of grace, is transforming. Now let me ask you, and you can answer. <clears throat> As Abraham follows God and gets step-by-step step this preview of God and of the land and all that, how do you see Abraham's life changing? What are some clues that Abraham's growing? When his worship changes. Yep. His worship changes. How else? He became nomadic where he was a yeah, he became nomadic. What else? Who did he take with him? His wife. Yep. It's a good, good idea. <laughs> good job, Abram. But he all took their his, all their possessions, all the people, even his nephew, Lot. Right? So he took a bunch of people with him. Let me just say he took a bunch of people. Uh, the people that he had acquired, you know, this is referring to the servants basically the employees. Abraham was a very wealthy man already at this point and had a lot of herds and flocks. He had a staff. He took the whole staff with him. And he took this guy named Lot, which we're going to hear a whole lot about. Give me a few things about Lot that you remember from other stories. Opportunistic. Is Lot going to be a liability to Abraham or an asset? Lot is going to be a massive liability, I mean, in many, many ways, one story after the other. Abraham's going to have to fight a battle to save Lot. Uh, Abraham is going to have to basically intercede for Lot to get him saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to have to pray and beg God to save Lot's life, you know. What's um, What's that? Lot chose poorly, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the, when the, he's going to have to split from Lot because Lot's uh, staff, because Lot gets rich too in the process. Lot's staff is going to fight with Abraham's staff and they choose which way to go and Lot does choose poorly. Abraham chooses more wisely because, well, God tells him what to choose so he kind of cheated there, but Abraham knew which way to go. Lot went down to some, got Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went up into the hills of Canaan. Every step of the way, Lot, in particular, is going to be a liability, and yet it wants, to, it wants you to know. It says it actually more than one time. Abraham took Lot. God said, leave. I don't know about you, but when, if God said to me, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house, I would think, okay, I can leave behind everything. I can leave behind Lot. I could leave behind all this bunch of people, these, this staff. It's just me and God. But Abraham does not have the attitude of it's just me and God. When God blesses Abraham, Abraham wants other people to be in on it. Now, how did he come to understand it that way? That other people need to be let in on the blessing that he got from God. God had already told him. That's right. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Verse 2, you will be a blessing. Verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham's already starting to walk that out by bringing a whole bunch of people, including knucklehead Lot, with him. And Lot gets blessed by being with Abraham, doesn't he? I mean, he's a knucklehead, but he gets blessed time and again. And even in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 11, it says Lot was righteous at the end of it. Which is, I read the story of Lot and I don't have a hard time. You have to squint really hard and turn backwards to see righteous Lot. But by faith, the Bible says Lot was righteous. Probably in large part because Abraham said, load up. Come on, you're coming with me. God's God's taking me somewhere. I have no idea where, but we're going to get God. And I want you to get God too. Here's the lesson, the covenant of grace always, no matter what circumstances may happen in your life, it will always produce a worshiping heart and a serving heart, always. In fact, these are the two things that when, when someone believes in Jesus, these are the two things that get fixed, or start to get fixed anyway. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That starts to happen. How does that happen? Grace. The grace of God begins to break into my, my stony, hard heart. And as grace comes in, worship goes out. Gratitude, praise, confession, thanksgiving, all the things that are involved in worship, humility, submission, begins to come out. Well, same thing here. As God's grace and generosity towards me comes in, service towards others goes out. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed so that in you all the families of the earth might be blessed. The headwaters of the covenant of grace are not very much different from the waters that we swim in. The cross of Jesus Christ brings into your heart such a depth of grace. You were treated not just better than you deserved. You were treated the opposite of what you deserved. And are treated the opposite of what you deserve currently. And so like Abraham, every, I mean, notice, every step of the way, he's building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. Every time God does something in his life, praise builds an altar, calls on the name of the Lord. He worships God. And, and don't you know that as he does, he gathers this bunch of people. He gathers lot. We're going to worship. Come with me. We're worshiping God today. And it's true, I think, that The gracious heart, that is the heart that has received grace, just can't starve itself of worship without really grave consequences. You know? If you don't want to worship, you don't understand grace. That's what it's saying, right? And in the same way, the heart that's captured by grace wants to share it. If you don't want to share it with other people, right? If you want to keep it to yourself. (laughs) If you don't want to invite anybody and take anybody along with you. You don't know grace. At At least not the way the Bible defines it. The amazing grace that we sang about earlier, the grace of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is a great example of this. What came out of his life more than any two other things? Worship, right? It tells us that Jesus, it was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and worship God. That was his custom. If you want to know who Jesus was, that was it. Every Sunday or every every Sabbath day, he was in church. And every day, he found some time to be with his father to worship him. And also, of course, we all know this about Jesus, he served people without fail. I mean, he served people with no, nothing held back. He was willing to, to really die to himself, truly die to himself in order to, to bring a bunch of people along with him, into the blessing of God. And so, y'all, I, I just want to I want to encourage you tonight, just thinking about this this headwaters. We're going to spend numerous weeks here, just thinking about Abraham and. There's lots of other great details about Abraham's life that we're going to get to, but for now, this very familiar story should remind us of the basic rhythm of what a relationship with God looks like in Jesus. Grace comes in, worship goes up, service goes out. We leave behind our former way. We cling to God. That's what it means to be a Christian.